It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Oh man, it's Thursday already. Thursday, April 23rd, 2009. We got a lot of stuff to cover today. A little bit more of a traditional edition of Fighting for the Faith. Got some news stories we got to go through. We're going to be reviewing a good sermon again today. And talking about baptism. Specifically, we're going to continue our discussion that we've had in other editions of Pirate uh, Christian Radio's Fighting for the Faith on infant baptism. So we're going to be talking about that today. I want to welcome you to Fighting for the Faith. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. This is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment designed to help you to think biblically, designed to help you think critically, designed to help you compare what people are saying out there in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of religion, and comparing it to the Word of God. And I am not exempt from this little exercise. In fact, one of the emails that we're going to be going to, getting to today, a little later in the program, is quite an extensive email that I got from Chick. And so we're going to be, that's how we're going to be talking about infant baptisms. They're kind of like follow-up questions. And so um, I'm catching up on some of my emails where people have uh, sent me and said, I'm not so sure if that squares with Scripture. Can you uh, clarify this? So today we're going to be uh, reading an email from Chick that's rather extensive, and uh, it actually took me some time to do some research on it. So stay with us. Today we're going to be doing a... Oh, several stories. We got a hate crimes bill that uh, potentially could be uh, getting through Congress. We got Elmbrook School as being sued. You'll be interested to hear about the reason for this. I think it's in Waukesha, Wisconsin, somewhere in that area. Um, and then we're going to read a, a piece from the Christian Post on a case for uh, uh, unfashionable churches. So, believe it or not, there's a pastor out there who is making a case that we need to. Uh, have unfashionable churches. We're going to be talking about baptism, and then we're going to definitely get into a good sermon review today. It's going to be a sermon preached by the Reverend Dr. Feeney, who is the head uh, teaching, I guess he's the the, the pastor pastor at, um, uh, what is that, Advent uh, Lutheran Church, Advent Evangelical Lutheran Church in Zionsville, Indiana, not too far from here. And uh, so we're going to be listening in on his Easter sermon today, which is, was definitely a good one and worth reviewing. I'm kind of burned out on bad sermons at the moment. <laughs> so it's like, I, 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 I need to be fed. I, I need to, it's like you know, traveling. Last week was like traveling through the desert looking for a glass of water and having not, having not found one anywhere. I want to let you all know that uh, today of... of it's as it's, it's weird as it sounds. Normally, I come to the microphone overprepared. It's not that it, today. It's not that I'm underprepared. Um, I couldn't figure out what I needed to cut. I've literally spent, it seems like, the past week in the writings of the church fathers and have been going crazy with it. It's just awesome the stuff that I'm reading. And today, in particular, I, I spent quite a few hours researching the anti-Nicene fathers. These are the church fathers who lived and wrote prior to the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., and uh, try to figure out what it is these guys thought about baptism, because I think it, it absolutely plays into uh, 
what we've been discussing on this topic and, and comes into play on the question of infant baptism. want to you know, kind of point you to some things there. So uh, this is definitely going to be an interesting program because I'm going to be quoting to you several of the writings of the Church Fathers. And one in, uh, one in particular is an epistle written by Cyprian. And uh, Cyprian, he uh, attended a council in Carthage. It's the third Carthaginian council and uh, they they took up the issue. This was, I think, in 254. Oh, what was the year on that? Hang on a second here. Let me pull up my copy. Uh, yeah, 253 A.D. And the issue that was being debated and discussed at the uh, Third Carthaginian Council was, believe it or not, infant baptism. But it's not what you think. <laughs> so uh, I can't wait to read this to you. It'll be rather interesting. So, and I know that I take a huge professional risk when I discuss the issue of infant baptism. Why do I take the, why is it a risk? Well, because for those of you who are not Lutherans, and there's a large, in fact, I think the vast majority of the people listening to this program are not Lutheran, uh, you are familiar with different doctrines as it pertains to baptism. What I would ask that you would do is grant Christian extend uh, Christian love and listen carefully to what it is that I have to say and just compare it to the Word of God. And uh, we'll see where we go from there. Well, the vast majority of evangelicals hold a, a view of, of baptism that I think is contrary to Scripture. And um, what's funny is, is that this particular uh, email that I got from Chick drove me to have to research a little bit harder about where some of the lines are uh, regarding the Lutheran understanding of the doctrine of baptism, because uh, there, in fact, I got, spent some time on the phone with Reverend uh, uh, Bill Swirla on this one, and there's two ditches that you got to avoid, and uh, we'll we'll talk about those ditches as we as the program unfolds today, because there's uh, I ha- let me put it this way, what I'm going to say today on baptism. Part, some of the Lutherans listening are going to go, yeah, that's right. And some of them are going to, wait a second, I don't know if that's right. <laughs> uh, believe it or not, the Missouri Synod Lutherans are divided on this issue. And I've come down on on a side of a debate that's internal to the Missouri Synod that means I could be shot at by uh, other Lutherans. So <clears throat> so I, 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 I run the potential literally today of, like, upsetting everybody, which, you know, I do that from time to time. Just because it's just an occupational hazard here at Fighting for the Faith. All right, diving into our news. Hang on, let me hear. It's been a few days since I've done the news, so we have to go to our vintage news music. Here we go. Uh, From the uh, Christian Post, we read, Hate Crimes Bill headed for vote in the House Committee. Uh, this is something that should bother everybody here, um, especially if you're a Christian and you're concerned about free speech. Um, hate crimes bill headed for a vote in the House committee. The House Judiciary Committee is uh, scheduled to continue debate and vote Thursday, that's today, on hate crimes legislation that seeks to add homosexual and transgender people to a list of specially protected categories of people under federal law didn't realize they were an endangered species. Uh, the panel is expected to reconvene Thursday morning after a five-hour hearing uh, the day before, during which several amendments backed by Republicans were rejected by Democrat uh, Democratic supporters of the bill. H.R. 
uh, uh, Bill 1913, the Local Law Enforcement Hate Crimes Act of 2009, would add sexual orientation, gender, and gender identity to a list of federally protected classes that already include race, religion, color, or national origin. During the debates, Republican lawmakers attempted to include members of the military, seniors, unborn babies, and pregnant women in the measure, but Democrats rejected the proposed amendments. Another amendment that would strip uh, gender identity from the bill was also voted down. Democratic lawmakers also shot down an amendment by uh, uh, Representative Steve King, a Republican from Iowa, that sought to change the name of the legislation to Local Law Enforcement Thought Crimes Prevention Act. Now, this is an interesting move uh, by Congressman King. He wanted to change the name of the bill to the Local Law Enforcement Thought Crimes Prevention Act. According uh, to King, this hate crimes bill is actually a bill to control our thoughts. While citing George Orwell's 1984, the party is not interested in the overt act. The thought is all that we care about. Uh, Many uh, Christian-based groups are opposed to the bill and have been closely monitoring its status. They argue that the measure could criminalize religious speech, leading to cases whereby pastors who preach against homosexuality could face the same prosecution as someone who committed a violent act against a homosexual. Sound outrageous? No, it's not. Just look what's happening in Canada. Okay? Speaking out against homosexuality, pastors are are literally being sued i don't think they're being put in jail yet but uh, they're being sued they're being brought up on on charges and uh churches are losing their non-profit status in canada if they speak out against homosexuality so uh think of it this way if uh if homosexuality becomes protected under this hate crimes bill um hate is a thought crime it's a thought crime which basically means that um um any anything that's deemed to be hateful thought you need thought police in order to enforce thought crimes by the way um it could get you in all kinds of trouble uh, john w whitehead president of the rutherford institute a civil liberties organization said the legislation is riddled with problems a problem which few want to acknowledge for fear of being labeled politically incorrect or worse homophobic is that in order to crack down on hateful behavior hateful thoughts and expression must also be targeted which runs diametrically diametrically counter to the first amendment's protection of free speech and expression wrote whitehead in a commentary on wednesday conservative groups say the legislation would uh violate the 14th amendment which guarantees equal protection under the law for all citizens by granting special protection to some victims and not to others that's a good that's a good argument gay rights advocates argued that the measure would help crack down on hate crimes motivated by a victim's sexual orientation or gender uh, by allowing the federal government to step in to assist local authorities where needed. Yeah, that's just what we need. Uh, but opponents of the bill contend that the legislation is unnecessary given existing hate crime laws in 45 states. In 2007, a similar bill was passed by the House. Uh, the Senate then passed the hate crimes legislation as part of a defense spending bill, but the House and Senate negotiators decided to strip the provision from the defense spending bill after concluding that it lacked the necessary votes to pass in the House. H.R. 1913 is expected to clear the House Judiciary Committee and be sent to the House of Representatives for a vote sometime this spring. So there you go. Um, 
just so you know, here at Fighting for the Faith, um, we don't hate homosexuals. In fact, we love them enough to tell them the truth. We love them so much that we can't help but tell them a couple of things. Number one, that the one true God who has revealed himself in Scripture and has revealed himself in the flesh of Jesus Christ has made it clear that homosexuality is a sin. Just as much as not loving God with all your heart is a sin, just as much as not telling the truth is a sin, just as much as committing adultery is a sin, just as much as coveting is a sin. And that we Christians share the same, same problem as everybody on the planet, including homosexuals, and that is that we are all by nature sinful and rebellious against God. And none of us is good. And the great news, the good news, is that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a perfect life. He was perfectly righteous before God and didn't break a single commandment. And he went to the cross to die for our sins. He was punished in our place on the cross on Golgotha and now is offering us, as a result of his vicarious atonement for our sins, full and complete pardon for all of our sins, including the sin of homosexuality. And he calls us to repentance and to believe in this good news, the good news of the forgiveness of sins because of Christ's death on the cross. And the great news is that when we are given repentance and faith as a gift from God, we are also given Christ's perfect righteousness as if we had lived it. And God no longer sees us as lying, thieving, cheating, adulterating, gossiping, homosexual, anything. He sees us as perfectly righteous in Christ. So we want to let every one of anybody out there who is struggling with the sin of homosexuality to know that we here at Fighting for the Faith, and me in particular, we love you enough to tell you the truth. Repent and believe the gospel. All right, next story here. Elmbrook schools sued over graduations at Elmbrook Church. Okay. Uh, For nine years, the Elmbrook School District has had high school graduations at Elmbrook Church. Okay. So this is, I think this is in Wisconsin, uh, Milwaukee, yes. Uh, now, an advocacy group is trying to stop them from holding the Brookfield, Brookfield Central and Brookfield East graduations there this year. Americans United for Separation of Church and State mm-hmm, uh, filed the lawsuit in federal court in Milwaukee on behalf of a graduating senior and several others who were not named It seeks to prevent the Elmbrook School District from holding the graduations on June 6th and June 7th. Quote, this is a clear violation of the Constitution, a clear violation of the separation of church and state, said Alex Lucanister, litigation counsel for the Americans United for Separation of Church and State, in an interview on 620 WTMJ's Wisconsin Morning News. Quote, these students and family members are being forced to graduate in the sanctuary of a church underneath, get this, a huge cross. Yes, 
Could you imagine? This is just terrible. These there's public school students are being forced to graduate underneath a huge, ugly cross that dominates the sanctuary. They're sitting in pews with Bibles and hymn books right in front of them. Could you? Could well, this is? Oh, I mean, I this is just abs. This, these are these are crimes against humanity. I mean, I can't. This is torture. I mean, I mean, waterboarding has nothing on this. I mean, could I mean, if you had to pick between which would you choose? Would you rather be forced to graduate in a church sanctuary underneath a huge cross with a big Bible in front of you and with a hymn book in front of you, or would you rather be waterboarded? Yep, definitely. I'd go for the waterboarding. Ah, man. Anyway, they, quote, they are being forced to graduate in a religious environment, and that is an egregious constitutional violation. <clears throat> Even if the school district doesn't have religion as its reasoning or for choosing the location, Lucaneister contends that the mere presence of a graduation there forces an endorsement of what Elmbrook Church believes. There's a symbolic message of endorsement sent, said Lucaneister. Well, actually, maybe, maybe it's just that uh, the taxpayers in the, uh, at Elmbrook schools can't afford a bigger uh, place to graduate. And it's, anyway, <clears throat> we continue. Um, right next to this huge cross in the auditorium, you have huge jumbotrons that show the speakers, the school district officials, when they speak on the podium, all their speakers. You have... You have a public official school district ceremony taking place in a religious environment, and that sends a clear message of endorsement of religion and favoritism of the Christian religion. <clears throat> Lucaneister explains that it's not just the physical environment there, but what he claims the teachings pre represented their force upon those who walk in for the graduation. So apparently, just the mere presence of a cross... A closed Bible and a closed hymn book, um, because maybe it just just maybe they you know these facilities are better than the school facilities and and for uh, for accommodate accommodating such things. Anyway, <clears throat> he continues. We brought the lawsuit on behalf of nine parents and students in the school district who do not subscribe to the religion of Elmbrook Church, who are extremely uncomfortable attending a graduation in this facility, said Luke Neister, whose group's lawsuit says that many top officials in the district are members of Elmbrook Church. See, that's evil. It's a conspiracy. This is a church that teaches that people who do not subscribe to the beliefs of this church are going to suffer torment in hell for our eternity. This church teaches that women should be subservient to men. It teaches that people who engage in sexual conduct that is not approved by the church will also suffer in hell. Can you believe that? By the way, I got this story off of... Uh, 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 an NBC affiliates website, and uh, boy, this is really, I mean, who's on trial here? Christianity, apparently. Anyway, a very large uh, proportion of the students and family members who attend, who would be attending this graduation in the views of this church are second-class people. They're second-class citizens. Actually, Christianity doesn't teach that somebody who is not a Christian is a second-class citizen in the United States. There's no such teaching um, in Christianity at all. We would say that they have no status in the kingdom of God. 
because they have rejected the gracious and merciful pardon of Jesus Christ for all of their sins. But as far as, you know, classes of citizens in the United States, somebody can be a first-class citizen of the United States, and they don't even have to be a Christian to boot. So I don't know where they got that idea. Anyway, Elmbrook uh, School District Superintendent Matt Gibson says district lawyers gave counsel saying that there would be no legal problems, but they had a warning shot from the advocacy group earlier this year. A bit surprised at the lawsuit, given that the whole issue is constitutional from the counsel we've uh, received in the past at Gibson who also spoke at 620 WTMJ's Wisconsin Morning News. However, we did receive some warning from the Americans for Separation of Church and State in February that if we didn't pull out of Elmbrook Church Auditorium, they may file a lawsuit. So what will Gibson and the district do now? Well, we're going to seek counsel again based upon the items that are in the lawsuit. In the meantime, our decision is to stay the course and try to honor the decisions of the students uh, that would like to hold their graduation there. Um... There could be some wiggle room for the district if the church complies with some demands on the district in the lawsuit. Uh, What would those demands be? I bet you it has something to do with getting rid of that cross. While there's an injunction that bars the graduation this year, uh, there's also an option that the church would do some things as far as removing whatever symbols they could or veiling other symbols that they may be all right with. Gibson has not yet discussed having crosses and other religious objects removed or veiled following the lawsuit, uh, which came across on Wednesday. Brookfield Central High School chose Elmbrook School as its graduation site in 2000. Brookfield East first decided to use it in 2002. The reason they like uh, Elmbrook Church, space, amenities, and the bottom line. The school's gymnasiums were too small and couldn't accommodate all the people coming to their graduations, explained Gibson. Uh, they were hot, they were stuffy, they were not air-conditioned, parking was an issue, and frankly, it's less expensive for the district to rent a venue than to stage it within the school with the custodial overtime and the takedown and the setup. Gibson also admitted there were complaints in some years about the site, saying people were asking the district to veil the cross inside the church. So, well, you know, I, here's the way I see it, all right? A church is a church. And if they have nice facilities and amenities, then the, then the school needs to weigh out what they would prefer to have. I think that, you know, let the atheists have their way. Pack everybody into the school gymnasium, pay the overtime, have it be expensive, and have everyone be miserable. Because that's what they want. They don't want to have to see a cross. But under no circumstances should Elmbrook Church take down its cross. Because it is, after all, their church, their facilities. And if the school wants to use their facilities, I'm sure they can. But since the atheists um, don't want to see a cross, can't see a cross, don't want to have to see a cross in a Bible and a hymn and, and you know all that kind of stuff, let them have their way. Let everybody be packed into the school gymnasium and they can sweat to death. I, for one... We'll be sitting here in my air-conditioned facilities in Indiana laughing at them. Oh, boy. By the way, um, I don't know if you've heard the stories about all the, all the people in Europe who are um, demanding of the, of the church there in England to, to give them certificates of de-baptism. Yeah, the, 
you know, they were baptized as an infant and they don't believe the faith and they want to be de-baptized. Funny enough, the church has actually had a certificate um, for that very thing for a long time. It's called a certificate of excommunication. And I think what should happen is is that rather than the church just saying, okay, you can have a certificate of de-baptism, they can say, sure, come on into the church and we would like you to come into the church, stand in front of the church, and tell the church that you think the whole thing is a crock, and we will gladly, after you've done that, excommunicate you. That's the way we've handled it in the past. Excommunication, throw them out of the church. Let them have it their way. They're being unrepentant. You know, they, they think they're being so clever and so on the attack. It's called excommunication. Just take, have them come in, deny the faith in front of everybody, offer them, excommunicate them, and then show them the door. Anyway, just, just an idea. Not even my original idea. Just have to pass it along. Okay. Um, you know what? We're going to take our first break before we get to this next story. And uh, we're, uh, young Christian leaders make the case for unfashionable churches. So we're going to take our first break. And when we come back, we're going to do that last story on uh, un- being unfashionable in church. And then we're going to launch into our discussion on baptism. And then we're going to be listening to a good sermon. A good. It's a, really, it's a, it's a good sermon. And... Uh, and uh, I hope that you guys will enjoy it. So stay with us. We've got lots and lots that we're going to be doing here. If you'd like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. Good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put dang. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. 
Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our cheap weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose uh, uh, vision. Okay. And- okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. In the middle of doing some news, reviewing the items of the day as it pertains to Christianity, and of course my colorful, authentic commentary to go along with it. I want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, you can. Partner with us and financially support us a couple of different ways. One is visiting fightingforthefaith.com, clicking on the donate button. We have several donate buttons there at fightingforthefaith.com, and you can donate online securely 
uh, using a credit card. Or if you would like to do it the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So uh, just want to tell you what's coming up here. We've got one more news story, and then I'm going to put my head on the chopping block. Now, the, it's always fun being the <clears throat> the one guy at a Baptist party that believes in infant baptism. <laughs> it, it Just let me tell you, the, the looks that can be shot at you, the, the assumption is that you're some kind of a heretic and that uh, you need to be taken outside the city gates and have rocks thrown at you until you stop moving. Now, yesterday on the program, I gave you a crazy, wild idea. And that was, uh, the the idea basically is uh, something like this. Uh, rather than having altar calls and having people come down and uh, pray the sinner's prayer and, quote, give their hearts to Jesus as if they could do such a thing, and what would Jesus want with something like that anyway? Um, instead, following the pattern that's set up in the New Testament, this crazy idea is pretty much goes like this. Um, when you preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins and God, the Holy spirit is convicting somebody of their sins and, and regenerating them. Then what you immediately do is you take them immediately and you baptize them. And I, I, and I mean, immediately they, they did it all throughout the book of acts. I showed you that yesterday. That's how that played out. It, um, that's what you do. And I, it was, I called up a pastor friend of mine, and we spent some time on the phone today, and I told him about my wild and crazy idea, and he says, you know what? It's sloppy, it's messy, but um, you won't get anyone in the Missouri Synod to, to do that. But um, you make a good point, though. It's, it's, it, it's got the wheels spinning. And so you know, the cra- I haven't been excommunicated yet. I just want to let you know. But um, my thinking on this, uh, you know, We'll, we'll get to that later. I, I, I'm preceding myself. I'm, I'm preempting myself before I should. One more news story here uh, from the Christian Post. Now, I don't know how to pronounce this pastor's name, and I apologize, but it's one of these names that you just go... Uh, the headline reads, Young Christian leaders uh, make young Christian leader makes case for unfashionable churches. Uh, the new senior minister of the historic Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, is convinced that serious seekers today aren't looking for something appealing and trendy. <laughs> Who is this guy? All right. <clears throat> when Pastor Tulian, uh, I cannot pronounce this name, we'll just call him Pastor T. It's T C H I V I D G I A I A I A N. Yeah, you know what's funny? I even looked a couple of places to see if I could figure out how to get this guy's name right. And uh, <laughs> Pastor T. When Pastor T uh, was ta- tapped to become the next senior minister of the historic Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, a number of media reports noted. Uh, ob- obvious differences between him and the megachurch's founding pastor, the late Dr. D. James Kennedy of uh, Evangelism Explosion fame, too. Uh, pastor T. Uh, cuts a far different image, noted a reporter for the Associated Press. His hair is spiky, 
His beard is sometimes scruffy, and his skin is tan. The reporter said, "Oh, oh no! He has he has a spiky, scruffy beard and a tan." Well, being only 36, Pastor T may look like the typical trendy modern pastor of today who would try to make his church more relevant and more appealing to draw the unchurched, but he's among those Christian leaders who believe that the main problem churches face is not that they are culturally out of touch, but that they are theologically out of tune. I'm sorry. Do I sound like I'm gloating? Anyway, we need to remember that God has established his church as an alternative society, not to compete with or copy this world, but to offer a refreshing alternative to it. Pastor T writes in his recently released book, Unfashionable, Making a Difference in the World by Being Different. <laughs> well, this guy's got it. I like this guy. I don't even, I never even met him, seen him, or oh, man. Anyway, when we forgot this, we inadvertently communicate to our culture that we have nothing unique to offer, nothing deeply spiritual or profoundly transforming. Tragically, this leaves many in our world looking elsewhere for the difference they crave. Uh, for Pastor T, whose grandfather was the renowned Reverend Billy Graham, wow, what drew him back to church after years of chasing the things of the world was his encounter at the age of 21 with the radical difference he had been longing for. He was a seeker being reached not by a man-centered, trendy show, but by a God-centered, transcendent atmosphere, he recalls. And Jackson, uh, Jacksonville-born preacher is convinced that serious seekers today aren't looking for something appealing and trendy. They're looking for something deeper than what's currently in fashion, he insists. Uh, through Unfashionable, the South Florida pastor makes the case for Christians to make a difference in the world by being different from the world. He explains what it means to be out of the style in the culture, to pattern ideas, beliefs, methods, and tastes in alignment with God's way and not the world's. He also makes a passionate plea for Christians to stop trying so hard to be cool, to fit in, and instead be courageous enough to be different. Truthfulness, not trendiness, is what new generations are thirsty for. Pastor T writes, they want to know there are people out there with their sights set on a different world. Uh, Pastor T hopes to mobilize a generation of God-saturated missionaries who will live against the world for the world and not be seduced by cool or what's fashionable. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, um, you know, D. James Kennedy, I, I knew of him, hadn't really spent any time listening to his teaching, but I, I've heard from other people, he was a pretty solid guy. I did the evangelism explosion thing when I was in college, and it seemed like, a, you know, the guy had a heart for the lost, and you know, and and understood that salvation was by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and uh, was interested in preaching the gospel and repentance. And so, I'm glad to hear that they that uh, Coral Ridge has a pastor who's brave enough to not be cool just for cool's sake. Because over and again, we have reviewed sermon after sermon from these guys who are chasing after the world to, oh, we're not, we're not, we're not stupid. We're not out of touch with what's going on. We, we can be cool too. Look, look, look. We'll preach about movies and, and, we'll, and we'll have a 30-day sex challenge. Does that sound appealing to you, world? Oh, come, please come to our church because we, we need numbers. <clears throat> Sorry. 
All right, Chick writes, and this uh, this particular email is a little late in being answered. <clears throat> and this is one that I wanted to take some time to uh, research before I answered it. She writes, "Dude, apparently I'm even though I've moved from Southern California and I'm in Indiana, I'm a, still a dude. Just want to let everyone know, in case you were wondering." And the answer to the question is, "Do I miss California?" You know what's hard for me? This is kind of sounds stupid, but um, it, it, when when I like watch television and I see Southern California on the TV, I actually get a little homesick. Um, it's not that things are bad out here at all. It's just that you know I grew up in California, and and anyway, it's I've never been homesick before. But there there you have it. Anyway, uh, she says, we were listening to what you said about baptism, and we think you're missing two things. The we here, I think, is Chick uh, Chick 2 and uh, 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 Chick 3. This is Chick 1 and Chick 3. And uh, we think you're missing two points, repentance and belief. And you know what, Chick? I'm going to tell you right off the bat, you are right on a particular level. So I don't want you to get... You don't don't stand up and be partying and you know, doing some kind of a victory dance, okay? I, I don't want any of that. That that behavior is just so not uh, approved of here on Fighting for the Faith. But um, on one level, you're absolutely right. She says, uh, we think you're missing two things, repentance and belief. First, though, get it out of your head that there are only two camps on this infant baptism and believer's baptism and and. Uh, infant baptism and believer's baptism that believes it's a symbol. There is a believer's baptism that is not a symbol. So we are not uh, we are not believer baptism people as an outward symbol as you think of it. Okay, so good. Uh, Chick has done a, jo- a good job here. And so where Chick is on the baptism things, she believes in believer's baptism, and she does not believe it's symbolic. She believes that it delivers the it's baptism delivers what it says it delivers. Okay, so we tried to go back to the PDF on baptism. You know, I got to rehang that. The the link got broken there. Um, anyway, it says we agree with you uh, with what you are saying, except for on the infant part. Nowhere in your teaching on baptism does it mention babies. Okay, this is true, and uh, you are doing uh, what you tell your listeners not to do, reading into the text. I know on a previous show you did mention it not being mentioned in the Bible, so let's go through this with you. (laughs) Okay, she's going to school me here. She says, you say you can look back to your baptism and know you are saved. Is that really true for infants who are baptized and grow up questioning their salvation? Now, I'm going to answer the question to you this way, okay? Everybody at some point questions their salvation, but let me let me put it into a different perspective here. You, uh, what if this is not they're questioning their salvation, but instead, like the people in Great Britain, they reject Christianity. Okay, so think this through. Our sister was baptized as a baby, as were each of us when we got saved. We were baptized in immersion too, and does not believe the Bible. Doesn't know what to believe about God and is not repentant. So she hears you talk about infant baptism, you saying you can look back on your baptism. Hmm. She thinks she is saved, and then based on your assumption that babies should be baptized. And frankly, this goes against everything that we believe about God. Above all, God is um, is just and fair, but if, if all three of us are saved because of our baptisms, uh, this would show God has is very unjust and unfair. Chick one and I, Chick one and three are daily repenting and trusting in Christ. 
um, while their sister is denying Christ and living a, a very worldly life. We all end up, do we all end up in heaven? Uh, that it, we all end up in heaven. That isn't, that isn't just a, or fair. Sorry. It's a little <clears throat> tiny, tiny print. We know that the truth about sin and repentance, uh, we know that's the truth about sin and repentance, but in the infant baptism line of thinking, this would say, uh, this would be the way it is. However, you are missing repentance and belief in your teaching about infant baptism. Now I'm going to skip ahead here. Now, Chick one and chick three want to make make this clear. You are absolutely astute in pointing out repentance and belief. Okay, and and I'll point this out to you. Now, here's what I believe about baptism, and this is a clarification on my position. Okay, baptism objectively delivers the things that it promises. Okay, however. Those objective things that it that it promises are only good, uh, effective for the person who has faith. Okay, now just by way of clarification, we're going to make this clear: faith is a gift from God, and it is delivered through the means that God delivers it. Okay, now just so you know. I am of the opinion that the scripture teaches that baptism delivers repentance, faith, forgiveness of sins, and other things. But it doesn't provide it using a Latin formula, ex opera operatum. Okay? This is a danger that you have that everybody has to avoid. Now, let me explain it to you this way. Okay, let's take baptism out of the equation for a second. Okay, let's just talk about regular old preaching the gospel, preaching the law, and somebody being saved. This is something that we can all agree upon. Okay, when we preach the gospel, when we preach to somebody, tell them of their sins, their need to rep- uh, for repentance, and their need to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, okay, it is, as Paul Washer described, preaching to a valley of dry bones. So what happens is, is that the imperatives of the gospel, repent and believe, okay? The, the gospel requires you to do something you can't do by nature. You cannot repent and you cannot believe by nature. Those things are not your part in salvation. Instead, the imperatives of the gospel, repent and believe, the, what the gospel demands, the gospel also supplies. Faith and repentance are a gift from God. So as a result of it, uh, when you really, if you were to just basically boil it down, regeneration is God's act. It's not ours. If you are repenting and trusting in the gospel, God has already regenerated you. And if you look through the book of Acts and try to figure out where the moment of regeneration happens, it's all over the map. Okay, there's not one particular, there's different instances, you know, where people receive the Holy Spirit. You know, it's just crazy stuff that goes on. And so I don't think God is very formulaic here. Okay, but, okay, that being said, okay, the gospel demands, and it's a weird way of putting it, the gospel demands repentance and faith. And what it demands, it supplies. Now, 
come back to baptism for a minute. We've gone through all the passages, you know, that we are buried with Christ, we are saved with Christ, uh, we're raised with Christ, our hearts are circumcised. Uh, what happens is is that, uh, you know, we, we're literally, uh, our sins are washed away, our sins are forgiven. All of these things are clear, past, are clear teachings in the Scripture, okay? Now, these are objectively delivered in baptism, but just like somebody, not everybody who hears the gospel, not everyone who hears the gospel has faith. They have had verbally somebody tell them of the objective forgiveness of sins that is offered to them in Jesus Christ. Christ died for their sins, whether they believe it or not. So when you preach to an unbeliever, whether they believe it or not, they are objectively forgiven. But subjectively, it's not their own without faith and without repentance. And the repentance and faith are given as a gift of God. Now, here's why some don't have faith. I couldn't tell you, but I can tell you for a fact that when you preach to a crowd of, of, you know, 500 people and you give them, you know, that are un, uh, they're unsaved, some at the end of it are going to have faith and repent. And some are going to walk away and continue in unbelief. Baptism is the same. Baptism objectively delivers the things that it promises. It delivers the forgiveness of sins. It delivers circumcision of the heart. In our baptisms, we are buried with Christ. We are raised with Christ. All of these things are objectively true because it's what God's Word says baptism does. Okay? However, not everyone who is baptized... will be joining us in heaven. There are some who, even though they've been baptized and have heard the gospel, continue and persist in unbelief. So the objective gifts of baptism are only made effective through faith and repentance, and the things that it demands, it delivers. Now, I know this kind of sounds crazy, but here's the deal. The thing you want to avoid is this idea that if I just perform this magical ceremony known as baptism, then I can say with 100% certainty that everybody who is baptized is going to be saved. So if that were the case, if it just works because you perform the magical baptism ceremony, then what will happen is you might as well do evangelism using a fire hose. Go out, grab a fire hose, and, you know, sit there and say, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you and, and water down the crowd. And magically, some of them will spring to life, right? But see, it doesn't work that way. And so there's this tension. And here's what happens. This, this is one of the reasons why my crazy idea kind of is not so crazy. If you look at what happened in the old te- in the New Testament when the apostles baptized, 
uh, basically some, you know, it, it happened on your conversion day. The day in which you repented and trusted in Christ, you were also baptized. It was all one big act. But then what happened? Okay. What happened on that day? The next day, now they got to get to work and disciple these people and tell them what's going on with the Christian faith. Okay. Well, the way I liken Pentecost, I liken it to the opening of man fishing season. Now, remember, the Apostle Peter and quite a few of the disciples who later became the apostles, they were fishermen. And Jesus said to Peter that he would become a fisher of men, right? Well, what kind of fisherman was Peter? Was he the kind of guy who stood on the shore, had a rod and reel and a lure, and tried to make, uh, you know, hide his hook by making it look like a bug or a smaller fish? No. He was a net fisherman. Okay? So he is very familiar with net fishing. He would go out onto the Sea of Galilee. He would cast out his nets. And whatever got caught up into the net, he would drag it onto his boat, haul it to shore, and sort it out. Throwing away the bad stuff and, you know, keeping the good stuff. Keeping the good fish. I think evangelism is a lot like net fishing. And on the day of Pentecost, we see the opening of man fishing season. And the Apostle Peter hauls in this humongous catch. That day, God added 3,000 to their numbers who were baptized. They repented and were baptized. And um, it, all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the, the uh, New Testament, that there was this urgency to baptism that went along with conversion. And then what, what followed it up? Uh, those who were baptized dedicated themselves to the apostles, preaching and teaching, to prayer, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. These were their regular habits. Now, um, does, you know, so what happened? Okay. If you think about it, the apostle Paul, on his missionary journeys, he, he followed similar practices from what we can see. I mean, people were baptized pretty much at the same time that they were converted. Some baptisms happening clandestinely in the middle of the night. Okay. So what did Paul, the apostle Paul do? Once they're baptized, you got to start, got to start teaching them, got to start discipling them, got to start telling them, you know, preaching God's word and telling them and teaching them what the Christian faith is. Does that mean that they were automatically saved and everybody who was baptized uh, believed and trusted? The answer is no, because we know from Scripture there are some who shipwrecked others' faith, who taught heresies, some who, uh, you know, what does Paul say, to the Galatians, the, those, the Galatian Judaizers, they had fallen from grace. And these are men who were baptized. So it, it, here's the deal. The gospel provides what the gospel demands. The gospel demands repentance and faith. God provides that miraculously, raising us from the dead. Baptism also supplies what it demands, and it has all these wonderful gifts associated with it. 
And so from the point of view of the Christian church, the early Christian church, there was no separation between regeneration and baptism. They saw them all as one singular act. Now, I know we're not talking about infant baptism at this point, but I want to kind of lay that out for you. And when we get back from the break, I'm going to spend a little bit of time reading to you the things I've discovered in the writings of the Church Fathers regarding their view of baptism. Why is it so important? Because it actually parrots what we hear in Scripture regarding baptism. And then we'll attack the problem of, uh, of uh, should you baptize a baby then? Keep in mind, just, just keep this in mind, no adult makes a decision to be saved, and no adult decides to repent and believe. Repentance and faith are provided as a gift from God. Just keep that in mind. So it's not like, it's not as if adults are the only ones who are capable of doing it because they're not. Adults are not capable of repenting and believing. They have to be given that. They have to be given to do that. All right, we're up on our second break. And so when we come back, we will tackle this this issue. Want to remind you, you can email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. 
So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. We're back. Talking about that thorny issue known as baptism. Lots of ink spilled on this issue. And it's not safe to be out of step with the American Christian culture on this. And yet I am. Why? Because I believe scripture is. And if you don't agree with me, that's okay. Show me in the scripture. Show me in the scripture. All right. Getting back to uh, the email here before we dive into uh, some of our church uh, patristics. Uh, chick 1 and Chick 3 actually quote Luther's small catechism here. And uh, and they 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 said, uh, we looked at the, uh, the Luther link. He doesn't mention infants either. I agree uh, with what he says, too, and I assume he baptizes infants, though. Yes, by the way, Luther definitely believed in, in baptizing infants. However... Luther did say early in his reforming career that uh, that he would walk away from infant baptism if it couldn't be supported scripturally, and he ended up keeping it. Okay, I just want to let you know that. Uh, so here's the question after a quote from Luther. First, this is from the uh, this is from Luther's small catechism. What is baptism? Answer: Baptism is not simply water only, but it is the water comprehended in God's command and connected with God's word. Question: Luther states that God's commanded and co- and it's God's command connected with God's word. What does he mean here? If it is a command, is it to be obeyed? The answer is yes. However, um, I you got to keep in mind the baptism is not a com- it, well. Let me put it this way: it's not law; it's gospel. Baptism is something that God does to you. And so, if you were to technically go back to, for instance, the um, uh, the Great Commission. In the Great Commission, it says, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing. The command is to the believers to baptize, okay? And when uh, when the crowd says to Peter, you know, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, into, it's literally into the forgiveness of sins. And so, um, you know, the, it, it is something that is commanded that we Christians do, and um, notice it says for us to do to others, and then... When somebody's commanded in Scripture to be baptized, it's stated in the passive voice, which basically means, hold still, this is something that's going to be done to you. Um, So what does baptism give or profit? Answer, it works forgiveness of sins. This is what it clearly says in Scriptures. Delivers from death and the devil. That's clearly what it says. And gives eternal salvation to all who believe this. And the, the important thing there is to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare, uh, which are such words and promises of God answer. Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but that he that believeth not shall be damned. So question, even Luther said, gives eternal salvation to who be- those who believe this. To me, implying that you believe first, uh, then get baptized. Okay, now, I understand that you would imply that, but again, go back to what I said. The, the, the gospel itself, uh, the, the imperatives of the gospel, the, the commands, repent and, and believe the gospel. 
Okay? What the gospel demands, the gospel also supplies. Repentance and faith are given as gifts from God. It is God who regenerates us. So the thing that the gospel demands from us is the very thing that the gospel delivers. So, but you're absolutely right in pointing out the fact that it gives salvation to those who believe. Okay? Uh, so let me let me read the rest of her question here. So same for the second part of, of this. Mark is quoted, uh, uh, believed and is baptized. Uh, now is there no concern for order in the Greek, or maybe does the Greek actually write it backwards? And uh, actually, the order in the Greek doesn't really matter there in in Mark. The point is is that what the scriptures promise it, it does deliver. Thirdly, how can water do such great things? Answer, it is not the water indeed that does them, but it's the word of God which is in and with the water and faith which trusts such word of God in the water. This is important because that faith part's right there. For without the word of God, the water is simply water and no baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism that is a gracious water of life and washing of regeneration in the Holy Ghost. As As St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. So she asked the question, by you keep saying it is baptism in the word. Uh, it is baptism in the word. How do babies hear the word? To quote Luther, For without the word of God, the water is simple water and no baptism. Back to our question about moving to a foreign country. uh, One may be moving to Bali. Uh, We're only 1.3% of the population uh, difference in English between hearing the understanding and listening. There's a difference in the Greek in Acts 19. When they heard, they were baptized in the name of uh, the Lord Jesus. I looked up, heard, and his voice in in my concordance Greek, akuo, means to understand. Well, yeah, that actually is one of the definitions of a cool. What I'm seeing there is a difference between just hearing a word a baby might hear, uh, might as a noise, and understand as one needs to be able to believe and repent. Now, let me just, again stop you right there for a second, okay? A kuo definitely means to hear, and it, at, it, it, there is an apprehension to it, but understand this, okay? The, baptism delivers. The thing that it demands. The gospel delivers the things that it demands. Repentance and faith is not our part. In fact, if you really want to be blunt, go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, so that no man may boast. It is not of works. What's the it? You have been saved by grace through faith, and it is not of yourself. The answer, both faith and salvation itself are a gift from God. It's not from you. So no infant, no toddler, no junior high kid, no teenager, no early 20-year-old, no 30-year-old, no 40-year-old, no 50, 60, 70, 80, or 90, or 100-year-old human being is capable of producing and generating repentance and faith. They can't. Because by nature they are dead in trespasses and sins.
And when they are saved, it's the work of God that bestows on them the things that that really the gospel demands. Okay. Now, continuing on, what does, uh, why, what does such baptizing of water signify? Answer, it signifies that the old Adam in us should, by daily contrition and repentance, be drowned and die uh, with the, all sins and evil lusts. And again, a new man daily come forth and arise, who shall live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Where is this written? St. Paul in Romans chapter 6 says, We are buried with Christ by baptism into death, that like as he was raised up from the dead by glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Luther says, By daily contrition, repentance die with all sins, a new man daily come forth. So babies are aware of this in our daily... (laughs) It's kind of a trick question. The answer to the question is, um, yes, your job as a Christian parent who has brought an infant to the waters of baptism is to teach them the faith, which includes daily repentance of their sins and contrition and sorrow for what they do. This is part of Christian parenting. They don't stay infants for very long. In fact, uh, that infant thing goes by really quick. Uh, They walk in newness of life because they hear their parents read Scripture to them every day and after they were baptized uh, as a baby. Anyway, so I know the issue comes back down to, it basically comes down to this whole issue of babies, babies, babies. You know, they can't repent. They can't believe. Well, neither can an adult. So anyway, so what I did here, um, let me let me come back to a passage that I read yesterday. And I kind of want to make this point because I think this one makes it better than others. And uh, let's see here. Acts chapter 2, we're at the tail end of it. All right, um, let me let me read this to you at the tail end of the sermon that we read yesterday from uh, Peter's Pentecost sermon. Listen, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Acts chapter 2, 39 makes it really clear that uh, the promise is not just for adults, but also for their children. Okay, I, I point this out because it's there so clearly in the text. Okay, Jesus, what did he say? Do not forbid the little children from coming to me. Do not forbid the little children from coming to me. The issue comes down to is whether or not uh, a, a, a an infant can have repentance and faith. Again, I go back to the point and basically say, yeah, because God is the one who gives it. Now, I want to point a couple of things out here. Um, regarding the regenerative properties of baptism been doing some work in uh, the the patristic writings and uh, we'll start off with Justin Martyr 
and uh, uh, Justin Martyr, I think he's uh, what like second century. Uh, we read from uh, in, in his book, uh, in, he's got an epistle that he wrote, chapter 16, Righteousness is not placed in Jewish rites. By reason, therefore, of this uh, laver of repentance and knowledge of God, which has been obtained on account of the transgression of God's people, as Isaiah cries, we have believed and testified that the very baptism which he announced alone is able to purify those who have repented, and this is the water of life. And so... Uh, here, Justin Martyr, early uh, church father, talks about baptism as able to purify those. Okay, and um, notice that it talks about repentance. And who is it that repents? God is the one who gives them the repentance. Irenaeus, mid second century, he writes uh, in his uh, book Against Heresies, book one, chapter twenty one. He says, "Thus there are many schemes of redemption as there are teachers of these mystical opinions. He's writing against heretics. And when we come to refute these schemes, we shall show it is show in its fitting place that this class of men have been instigated by Satan to a denial of that baptism, which is regeneration to God and thus a renunciation of the world. Okay. Irenaeus a church father writing in the second century. And by the way, Irenaeus learned the Christian faith from Polycarp. Polycarp learned it from the apostle John. So we're talking second, third generation, uh, second generation Christian at this point. And he, in his writing against the heretics makes it clear that he believes that baptism is regeneration to God. So baptism regenerates you. This is important stuff. In other words, it delivers the thing that the gospel demands, repentance and faith. Um, chapter 2, uh, well, actually, not ch- uh, section 2, chapter 21, it says, They maintain that those who have attained to perfect knowledge must of necessity be regenerated into the power which is above all. He's writing against the Gnostics. For it is otherwise impossible to find admittance within the Pleroma, since this regeneration it is which leads them down into the depths of Bythos. He writes then correctively, for the baptism instituted by the visible Jesus, this is the real one, not the invisible Gnostic Jesus, was for the remission of sins. Uh, but the redemption brought uh, brought in by that Christ who descended upon him was for perfection. Okay, So here in Irenaeus' writing against the heretics, against heresies, against the Gnostics, he makes it clear that uh, the baptism is regenerative, and it's for the remission of sins. Now, I know you're all sitting there going, well, you've made this point a million times. I kind of want to point this out, how this is working out. In Book 2 Against Heresies, Chapter 22, um, Irenaeus, writing in the mid-2nd century, so this is like 150 to 170, right in there, he writes this. He says about Jesus, okay, Jesus came to save all through the means of himself. All, I say, who through him are born again. This includes infants, children, boys, youths, and old men. Okay. Irenaeus, writing in the second century, mid-second century, I mean, the apostle John has not even been dead a hundred years yet. He writing against the Gnostics, claims that Jesus Christ came to save all, and this includes infants, children, boys, youths, and old men. And in his way of thinking, to limit salvation to only adults 
is to limit the saving power of Christ. In fact, he says um, against the Gnostics, he says, He therefore passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, thus sanctifying infants, a child for children, thus sanctifying those who are of his age, being of the same time made uh, to them an example of piety, righteousness, and a submission, a youth for youths, and becoming an example uh, to youths, and thus sanctifying them for the Lord. So, in Irenaeus' understanding of the Christian faith, Jesus Christ came to save everybody. And nobody is excluded. Nobody. And it doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are, Christ dies for the sins of the whole world, and he came to save, in his words, infants, children, boys, youths, and old men. So... His understanding of the Christian faith, which is a lot more primal than our understanding, cl- a lot closer to the teaching of the apostles, and uh, he has no problem saying that Jesus Christ saves infants. And in you know in his works, he makes it clear that regeneration, uh, baptism regenerates and uh, remits sins. We read uh, the epistle of Ignatius, written to Polycarp. Uh, By the way, Ignatius and Polycarp were contemporaries. Um, In his uh, epistle to him, he writes to Polycarp, Let your baptism endure as your arms, your faith as your helmet. (laughs) So uh, Ignatius basically tells Polycarp to, to cling on to his baptism as if it's a sword. Okay? And your faith is a helmet, and love is a spear. Your patience is a complete penelope. So um, that, I thought that was interesting. And then we get to Clement of... Um, let me see, is this Clement of Alexandria? Yeah, Clement of Alexandria writes, um, uh, The baptism of the word, we are washed from all of our sins and are no longer entangled in evil. So Clement of Alexandria, Alexandria writing 2nd century, says that uh, we are washed from all of our sins in our baptism and are no longer entangled in evil. And he says, and such is the union of the word with baptism. It is the agreement of milk with water, for it receives it alone of all liquids and admits mixture with water for the purpose of cleansing as a baptism for the remission of sins. So Clement of Alexandria, you know, really early patristic writer, claims that baptism is for the remission of sins. Tertullian, on his, in his book on baptism, on or origin, uh, he writes, he says, Happy is our sacrament of water, in that by washing away the sins of our blindness, we are set free and admitted into eternal life. And uh, so Tertullian basically says that in baptism, our, our sins are washed away and were regenerated and admitted into eternal life. And he says, But we little fishes, after the example of our ichthus, that's fish, uh, big fish, Jesus Christ, are born in water, nor have we safety in any other way than by permanently abiding in water, so that, mo- so that most monstrous creature who had no right to teach even sound doctrine knew full well how to kill the little fishies by taking them away from the water. I find that interesting. But here's kind of the cap of of all of this it mean when you really go back into the writings of the church fathers what you find is they speak of nothing about baptism being you know some kind of a christian coming out party you know showing the world that you've made a decision for jesus that's completely missing in the writings of the church fathers and 
early on, you have, I mean, right out of the shoot, they're talking about baptism as if it remits sins. It's regenerative. And Jesus comes to save people of all ages. And then we've got this interesting little um, epistle written by Cyprian. Okay. Cyprian, um, this is uh, epistle number, what is that, 58? Uh, to Phidos on the baptism of infants. This is from the third Carthaginian council that met to discuss different theological and doctrinal uh, questions of the day. And um, this was written in 253 AD. Okay? This is still less than 200 years after the death of of all of the apostles. And listen to this uh, title, argument. In this letter, Cyprian is not establishing any new decree, but keeping most firmly the faith of the church for the correction of those who thought that an infant must not be baptized before the eighth day after its birth. So this is, so epistle number 58 uh, which summarizes the proceedings of the Third Carthaginian Council, the question of infant baptism got brought up, but it wasn't whether or not infants should be baptized. The question at hand was, should you wait eight days to baptize him? Because after all, the Circum, you know, when it comes to circumcision, circumcising infants, according to the Old Testament, uh, uh, infant males, uh, you you had to wait eight days, and so somebody had this idea. Well, we can't. It's not whether or not we can baptize babies, but the question was, uh, should we wait eight days to baptize them? Okay, so let me read Cyprian's response. This is um, paragraph two, but in respect of the case of the infants which you say ought not to be baptized within the second or third day after their birth, and that no law of ancient circumcision should be regarded so that you think that uh, the one who is just born should not be baptized and sanctified within the eighth day, we all thought very differently in our council. For in this course, which you thought was to be taken, uh, no one agreed with, uh, no one agreed, but we all rather judge that the mercy and grace of God is not to be refused to anyone born of man. For as the Lord says in his gospel, the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. As far as we can, we must strive that, if possible, no soul be lost. For what is wanting to him who has once been formed in the womb by the hand of God, to us indeed and to our eyes, according to the worldly course of days, they who are born appear to receive an increase, but whatever things are made by God are completed by the majesty and the work of their maker. Moreover, the divine, uh, moreover, belief in divine scripture declares to us that among all, whether infants or those who are older, there is the same equality of divine gift. Elisha, beseeching God, so laid himself on the infant son of the widow that he, who was uh, laying dead, that his head was applied to the head and to his face, and his limbs of Elijah were spread over and joined each of the limbs to the child. So, to the early Christian church, the, there was no question as to whether or not you baptize an infant. Uh, the, the big question of the day in, uh, in the third century 
was whether or not you wait eight days. And they argued that all human beings are equally in need of God's grace and none should be denied it because Christ came to save everybody. They understood that salvation, remission of sins, uh, regeneration. In fact, Augustine in his works constantly refers to baptism as the bath of regeneration. It's like all over Augustine's writings. So when you go back to the early church, the early church, the way they looked at it is not infants should not be forbidden from coming into the kingdom. How do people come into the kingdom through the means of grace, the preaching of the word and, and, and through baptism. So if baptism, if God delivers in baptism things that he promises in his word regarding it, then baptism delivers forgiveness of sins and regeneration. And in their way of thinking, in this ancient primal Christian faith, no, this is long before Nicaea, okay? These guys are saying that Christ died for everybody and came to save everybody regardless of their age. And they understood that it's God who regenerates. Here in the United States, we want to think it has something to do with uh, something within us that we do. We do not do the repenting. We do not do the believing. Those are given to us uh, literally because of God's regenerative work in hearing the gospel and in being baptized. I know it sounds odd to the American ear, and believe me when I tell you, I struggled with this. It took me a long time to come around, but the thing that kept, that basically ca caused me to turn around on it was the clear teaching of God's word. So the issue comes down to baptism, we know what it does, we know what's delivered in it. Now the only question is who's, uh, who's a prime candidate for it? And the answer is sinful human beings are a prime candidate. Anybody who's a sinful human being. And what happens in the early church is that people, after they're baptized, they're taught the Christian faith. Infants, after they're baptized, they're taught the Christian faith. Now, it's not a problem that some people turned out to be heretics and actually turned out not to believe. That happens. It's not, it's not any, has nothing to do with the deficiencies of the promise of the promise, it has to do with the fact that the promises of baptism are really only effective for those who have faith. And just like not everyone who hears the gospel believes, not everyone who baptizes, is baptized believes. Why? I don't know. God's word doesn't say. So we live in that tension. It's not some kind of an automatic thing, but it truly does deliver the things. Now, in the case of the errant sister, listen carefully on this one. The errant sister who baptized as an infant and right now is, is living like hell. Okay? There's no reason to assume whatsoever that your sister has faith. She needs to be called to repentance, and she needs to be called to trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And remember... What God, what the gospel demands, it provides. Now, if in God's providence and mercy, your errant, erring sister repents and believes, she doesn't need to be rebaptized. 
She needs to take up the gifts of baptism that were there for her the whole time that she laid down. Anyway, I know this is going to spark some more questions, and I know it's funny. I'm just I'm looking at our audience right now. It's huge. <laughs> People that I've never heard a guy talk about infant baptism before. This is I, this is strangeness to my ears. Send me emails. Feel free to challenge, but remember, if you're going to challenge, base it on God's word. These were excellent questions, by the way, Chick 1 and, and Chick 3. And I hope you, I hope I answered your questions at least substantively. And then I would challenge any of you guys out there. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis, in, he wrote the introduction to the book. Uh, to, it's like the 1947, four, uh, 49, 48 uh, translation of Athanasius's On the Incarnation. And in there, he has this wonderful essay that he wrote called On the Reading of Old Books. And basically, the, the gist of the argument is, is that just like a fish can't see the water it's swimming in, we don't necessarily see the water we're swimming in culturally. And so we're impacted by the questions of our day, the culture, the assumptions of our day, and, and our culture. And there's certain just pieces of furniture that you just don't question or challenge. How come that's there rather than over there? And so this creates some kind of a chronological myopia, if you would. Solution to solving this problem? Get out of the 21st century. Don't read the latest books only. Get out of this century. Get out of this culture and read people who did not grow up in 21st. 20th century or 21st century America and who don't think like Americans get talk to people who are citizens who are citizens of empires long gone they had a different set of questions and when you look at the challenges they faced in you know as a christian in that era in that time under that government or different governments you'll see that you'll see the veil lifted from your eyes and you can get a better, clear picture. And when you look at the writings of the church fathers, they truly believed that baptism was regenerative and that Christ died for everybody, including infants. And the big debate in the middle of the third century wasn't over whether or not to baptize infants, but was whether or not you should wait eight days to do it. That ought to have some impact on your thinking and challenge you as an American thinker. Is what's going on here? All right, we're going to switch gears one more time. And what we're going to do is we're going to do our sermon review. And uh, to do that, we have got to play our sermon review music. And here we go. That's the theme for the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's because here at Fighting for the Faith, when we do sermon reviews, we review the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today, I'm still tired from doing all the bad sermon reviews. <laughs> so today, we're not going to review a bad sermon. We're going to review a good sermon. And uh, I have found a sermon by uh, the Reverend Dr. Feeney of, hang on a second here, Advent, Advent, Advent Evangelical Lutheran Church. 
in Zionsville, Indiana. And this was the sermon that he preached on Easter. Now, I'm, you're thinking, wait, wait a second. Easter was like a almost two weeks ago. Um, Easter what, is not a day. It's a season. It is a day, too. And uh, just because it's not the day doesn't mean that we can't enjoy an Easter sermon because we're still in the season of Easter. In fact, we will be until Pentecost. I want to keep that in mind. So this is not out of bounds. This is actually a really good sermon. And the, the one thing I, and in listening to his sermon, Pastor Feeney is, he's a soft-spoken guy. He's not this charismatic preacher. Um, and yet what he says is just spot on, well thought out, very, very deep, and very good. We now uh, hear the Easter sermon preached at Advent Evangelical Lutheran Church in Zionsville. Indiana. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and our risen Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for this day is taken from the 28th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to read it from where we left off in our previous text. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Please be seated. Sometimes lies tell the truth better than the truth itself. It is true that everybody likes to be able to hear a happy ending to a traumatic story. Jesus was crucified like he was a criminal. He was abandoned, rejected, spit upon, beaten, crowned with thorns, scourged, mocked, ridiculed, nails driven through his feet and hands, thorns upon his head, scourged, mocked, And in the end, his dead body was pierced with a spear through his heart. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to have a nice ending to that story? Wouldn't the resurrection be a kind of a good way to be able to get past all those terrible things? Well, do you think that the disciples fabricated this story of the resurrection? Our love for happy endings is probably what makes most people think, many people think, that the resurrection was nothing but a myth. Does anybody, however, really care about whether or not myths are true or false or whether or not they're historically accurate? I don't think so. You don't have to lie about a myth. Does anybody really care anything about Zeus or Apollo being historically true? Does anybody really care whether or not Thor makes thunder with his hammer or with a drum? Does anybody really care whether or not Odin killed a giant in order to be able to make the world out of the body of the dead giant? The only reason 
anyone needs to lie is when there is danger of something being true. What kind of danger do we find, or did the chief priests find in the resurrection? First of all, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then the fact of the matter is, is that he is the Son of God. Remember that story about Joseph and his brothers, how they sold him into slavery in the land of Egypt, and how then they presented themselves before him when they were starving and asked for grain. And Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Do you remember what their reaction was? Their reaction was sheer terror because they were afraid of what it is that their brother was going to do to them. In a sense, it was either a good thing or a bad thing. If he forgave them, they were in very good, a very good situation. They were going to be able to receive from their brother all of the treasures of Egypt. But if he was angry with them, they were also going to be punished, if not possibly even destroyed. In the same way, when Jesus was raised from the dead, those who rejected him and scorned him stood to lose absolutely everything, whereas those who believed in him and loved him embraced him and began to understand what came with his resurrection. Perhaps one of the reasons why it is that his enemies needed to lie about him was that they were quite being quite rational about the consequences of their behavior. It's kind of like if you won the lottery and you were standing there stupefied, you'd be like the disciples realizing that Jesus was raised from the dead. What did I just get from this? But his enemies were very rational in all their scheming because they knew of the importance of the resurrection. If Jesus was raised from the dead, that means that everything that Jesus taught was true. For instance, when he said to the paralytic man, Thy sins be forgiven unto thee, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then that meant that that paralytic's sins, in fact, were forgiven. If Jesus was Now, I want to point something out. This is important. When we talk about Jesus' resurrection, uh, some in the emergent church, Tony Jones comes to mind, uh, they don't, they, because they don't believe um, in so much of just sound biblical doctrine, he doesn't quite see uh, the point of uh, the resurrection uh, as it pertains to penal substitution. Well, Jesus was running around the landscape forgiving people's sins left and right. One of the major points of Jesus' resurrection is it shows that he had the authority to do the things that he was doing. Think back to when Jesus clears the temple and the, uh, the, the, the Jews challenge Jesus and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus says, tear down this temple and I will build it again in three days. And they go, what? It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you can build it again in three days? But the temple that he was speaking about was the temple of his body. So Jesus Christ, his resurrection from the dead, proves he had the authority to do the things that he was doing, like clearing the temple as if it was his own house, right? 
as in forgiving sins left and right. And then we can declare the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ because we know that he is who he claimed to be, and that's none other than God in human flesh. How do we know this? He rose from the dead. He was raised from the dead, and he was the Son of God. Then when he said to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who wanted to justify themselves and set themselves above all others with their false, vain works, he told them that they were going to be shut out from the kingdom of God. And therefore, if Jesus was raised from the dead, that meant that they were going to be shut out from the kingdom of God. Do you think that anybody would want to be able to have religious leaders of the Jewish nation who are going to be shut out from the kingdom of God? So I guess there maybe were a few reasons for why it is that the chief priests tried to cover up the fact of the resurrection. If Jesus were raised from the dead, then everybody who put their faith in him would most certainly also share with him in the resurrection on the last day. Right on, right on, right on. If he was raised from the dead, then we will be raised too. There's all kinds of stuff that's wrapped up in Jesus' resurrection. And I like how Pastor Feeney is taking time, sticking to the text, and unpacking all of that for us, telling us what the text says. Isn't that what Jesus said to Mary? He said Mary to Mary and Martha, do you believe in the resurrection? And they said to him, yes, Lord, we believe in the resurrection upon the last day. Jesus said, you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That was not only true of Lazarus. It is true of every person who has died with faith in Christ. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then all who believe and put their trust in him for eternal life will also share in that resurrection. But those who do not will perish everlastingly. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why the chief priest needed to lie. If there was no resurrection, then religion was just about, well, what we are doing right here and now. And they, of course, were in charge of what we're doing what here and now. Jesus told a parable. He said a man had a vineyard, and he went away and let it out to tenants. Then he sent his servants back to collect his share of the harvest. He sent them, and every single one of the servants was mistreated by those men who had taken over his vineyard. Some they beat, some they murdered. And finally, he said, I'm going to send my son. They'll respect him. When the owners of the vineyard saw that the son was coming, they said, come, let's kill him. And that way we can take the vineyard for ourselves. He said, what do you suppose the man is going to do when his own son was put to death like this? He's going to come and destroy those men. And he's going to give the vineyard to somebody else. The very same people who put Christ to death, if Jesus was raised from the dead, were going to be put out of their inheritance. They were going to be put out of God's vineyard. And they had every single reason, therefore, to want to cover up the fact of his resurrection. If indeed Jesus was raised from the dead then those who confessed him, those who condemned him, 
and lied to Pilate and Herod and stirred up the crowd in order that he might be crucified, well, they were wrong. And sometimes it's very, very hard for people to admit that they are wrong and to be found guilty of jealousy and fear and corruption. So what was the reason the high priests paid off all those soldiers if it was not for the purpose of teaching them or helping them to lie about the resurrection? Lies are really not all that hard to recognize if you are willing to be discerning and open-minded. First of all, lies do not depend upon facts. Lies are things that just simply exist out there in the air. All you have to do is just say it, and to the ear that wants to doubt and believe the lie, well, then there are two people that supposedly believe it, and when there's two and they share it, then there will be four. And if four and more believe it, then of course it must be true, right? It no longer needs to worry about being weighed or measured or tested. Lies are things that simply become eventually gossip, gossip leading to party spirit, and party spirit ultimately destroys the gospel. Jesus could have told the whole world about who he was. He could have said, I am the Messiah. He was the Son of God. But you know what? Jesus never confessed that he was the Messiah to anybody. It always had to come out of the mouth of somebody else. He did not want the truth of who he was to rest upon merely his own words. So he relied upon the Holy Spirit and upon his Father to bear witness to him for who he was. The Father and the Spirit sent the angels to the shepherds. They brought the wise men from the east to stand beside his manger. There was those, that same Holy Spirit that moved the prophetess Anna and Simeon, the seer, and the wise men, as I said before, Zechariah, the priest, Hannah, the prophetess. They all confessed who he was. The Holy Spirit told us who Jesus was through John the Baptist. And there at the baptism of Jesus, the heavens were parted and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. But what about the miracles themselves? The miracles that testified to who Jesus was. The lame walked, lepers were cleansed, the blind were made to see, the deaf were made to hear, and the dead were raised to life. Jesus didn't have to brag. He did not need to parade his accomplishments before the world. He didn't even need to confess himself and tell us who he was. He let the Father and the Spirit do the talking and the confessing for him. Just a, man, hard to even comment on this because it's so good. Um, little note there regarding John the Baptist's um, you know, request, are you the one or should we look for another one to come? Uh, when Jesus uh, sends him back and you know, he's quoting uh, a passage of Scripture, there's one important little detail he left out of that citation of Scripture. And the prisoners were set free. That little part, that little detail didn't make its way back to, the, uh, to John the Baptist uh, because he, as a prisoner, wasn't going to be set free, at least not from that prison. Anyway, just had to add a little historical flourish into it. Look it up, by the way. Do some little cross-reference work on that. Anyway, 
<laughs> Great sermon. A liar promotes himself with words into the air. A man of truth lets the truth come from others and lets the facts speak for themselves. Lies also have no history. Let us just for a moment consider the possibility that the disciples had maybe actually stolen the body of Jesus. Now, listen carefully to what he's going to unfold here, talking about the nature of lies. Now, we recently played the audio from Bart Ehrman's appearance on uh, the Colbert Report, and Colbert made just this excellent point um, regarding uh, Ehrman's, well, the all the different gospel accounts don't really jive regarding the resurrection. There's all these little conflicting details, and and therefore we have to conclude the, that the resurrection didn't take place. And uh, Colbert basically said, y- y- "Aren't you burying the lead story?" I mean, it just it was just beautifully done. Watch what Pastor Feeney does here. He doesn't have the snarkiness of uh, of Colbert. Of which I'm supremely jealous. If only I can achieve that level of snarkiness. Anyway, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, listen to uh, what Pastor Feeney does here. He's now, in, in telling us what this text means, in, in digging out this whole idea that the disciples stole the body, he's going to tell you something about the nature of lies, which is just some really, really good... Ad- not, it's a really good point, not only for this text, but listen carefully. This is just brilliant. Did the disciples have a history of stealing? Was Peter on the side a pickpocket? Or was John maybe somebody who was a shyster of a businessman on the side? Were the disciples always kind of scheming about how to be able to break into people's houses or maybe even the temple? How it is that they might steal some treasure or fall upon somebody on the road? No, those two malefactors were crucified on the other side of Jesus. There is absolutely no history in the disciples of the kinds of deception that they were being accused of. But what about the high priests? What about those chief priests? History tells us an awful lot about them. Caiaphas called a rump meeting of the Sanhedrin. It was a small meeting of a small group at nighttime, and that was illegal. Caiaphas rent his garments in the presence of Christ as a pretended offense at Jesus, and that was illegal as a high priest for him to do. They produced false witnesses against Jesus, and that is both immoral and illegal. Jesus was both scourged and also crucified, which was illegal to do both. Liars always have a history of lies, but their lies never have any history. That is... There is nothing in the past that in any way suggests that the disciples were guilty of the heinous crime that they had been accused of. And what about church history itself? Lies have no history in the church either, but the truth does. Was Christ foretold in the scriptures? Some 600 Old Testament prophecies speak to the life of Christ and were fulfilled. The Old Testament tells us where he was born. It tells us how he was born. It tells us about his mother's conception, the place of his upbringing, his genealogy, the innocent victims at Bethlehem that died when they tried to kill him, John the Baptist's ministry, 
Jesus' zeal, his authority, his humble upbringings in Nazareth, his rejection, betrayal, price of sale, his silence before Pilate, his treatment of the criminals, and his burial in the tomb of the rich, to say nothing of his resurrection. All of them were spoken about in the Old Testament. Do you think that maybe 10,000 years of history accurately foretelling the life of Christ might in some way outweigh that little tiny lie that said his disciples came and stole his bodies while we were asleep. And need I add the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone taught salvation by grace through faith, that wonderful doctrine that tells us that it's nothing of our own doing, that it's a gift that comes from God, and that God himself is the one who will do all that is necessary for our salvation. And the chief priests knew nothing of this, but in their legalistic understanding and their constant desire to strain the gnats of the law and find some way to accuse Christ, that they were swallowing camels instead of gnats. Who do you think was really going to be honest about the resurrection? Lies always come with contradictions. If, in fact, the soldiers had been so remiss in allowing the body of Jesus to be taken while they were asleep, what do you suppose, according to Roman law, would have happened to those soldiers? According to Roman law, they would have been executed. So why were they taking money if Jesus had, in fact, been stolen? And how could they have escaped punishment after he had been stolen? And why is it that the high priests had to intercede for them with the authorities. In other words, the only way the soldiers could have let that body of Jesus be stolen is if that they had done so through bribery. Therefore, by saying that he had been stolen and yet escaping punishment as a soldier, they were in fact saying that Jesus was alive. You know, contradictions are always the mark of a liar. If we say that we love God, but hate our neighbor, then we're liars, aren't we? If we claim, like we say in the confession, to be without sin, then we're liars too. When there is a difference between what it is that we say we are and what we believe and what we do, then we're liars too, aren't we? Notice how he's using the law. Ouch. Is there any contradiction to what Jesus said and did? Did he ever promise us a rose garden? He said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Did Jesus tell us that being a disciple was just nothing but a piece of cake? Or did he say, in this world you will have tribulation? Did he say that we could gain great riches in this world by being his disciple, or that maybe the price of discipleship was something that really just took for a minimal amount of sacrifice? He said, the man who loves his life in this creation will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The truth, he foretold it. 
He said, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. A lie will always sound the same over and over and over again. I'm deeply indebted to a man who once taught me how to recognize liars because he said he was an addicted liar himself. He told me that he could recognize liars very quickly, kind of like a recovered alcoholic can recognize a person who is still in denial as an alcoholic. He said that to be a good liar, you have to be able to have a very good memory, for the lie has to somehow be protected by another lie that follows upon it. If you forget what you said in a previous lie, you'll eventually come to contradict yourself. So, of course, you either have to have a very good memory, which is what every good liar has to have, many of them are very bright, or you have to memorize what it is that you are going to say. You have to memorize your lie. You'll notice that when you tell the truth, you don't have to remember what it is that you previously said. All you have to do is be honest every time about what it is that you believed or what it is that you experienced. The truth, therefore, is something that doesn't change, but as strange as it might sound, when you tell the truth, it very often does change, at least the sides and the colors and the various shades of what took place very often are different, much like what we see in the Gospels when each of them tells a different story about the resurrection, but they all agree. A lie has only one color. It has only one side. It is one-dimensional, and it can only be preserved in slogans and phrases and mantras. When you hear a lie coming from the mouths of many people and it's the same sound, it is always the same phrases, the same words, and the same sloganeering. They came and took his body while we were asleep. They confessed, Jesus did not rise from the dead because his disciples came and stole his body over and over again. The same phrase, the same wording, the same slogans came forth. A while back, there was a movie that was highly acclaimed. It was a great movie. It was a German movie, and it had a title called Das Leben der Anderen, The Lives of Others. It is a story about an officer in the Stasi, which is the East German Secret Service, and they were, he was teaching a class on how to be able to interrogate potential subversives. To the novice observer, it looked like the man that was being interrogated was quite innocent. But the Stasi officer proceeded to crush him with interrogation techniques that appeared to be unnecessary and even cruel. Strangely, in the end, the man actually cracked and confessed and you finally realize that he actually was guilty of the crime for which he had been suspected. Later on, when the students interviewed the teacher and said, why is it that you, how did you know that he was in fact lying? His response was quite interesting. He said something like this, notice that his answers were always the same. He never wavered. He never changed anything in his story. This is the sign what, that he, was, had, he had a prepared response, and therefore that he was lying. 
The prepared responses of the high priest tells us far more than what it is that the disciples themselves were even saying that day about the resurrection. Their statement was a prepared lie. Their statement was a prepared lie, not unlike, well, when you walk into your house and your child looks at you with big eyes and says, I didn't break the dishes Hmm. without you even knowing that the dishes have been broken. What did that just tell you? I didn't break the dishes. When the chief priest formulated this doctrine, he didn't rise from the dead while the disciples themselves didn't even know what in the world was happening. What do you suppose that that tells us? That is a great point, and, and one that I had never even thought of until I heard, I heard this sermon. You have the chief priests circulating the story, the disciples stole the body, while they're, they're still not convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead yet. They're still trying to piece together what had happened. And that's comparing it to a child saying, I didn't break the dishes. And you have to run into the kitchen then and go, what would you break? Good point. So as Christians, we boldly assert these four things. As Christians, we boldly assert the factuality of the resurrection, and we believe and confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Fact, not myth. Right. We assert the historical continuity and, uh, and historicity of the resurrection and the entire story and the writings of Holy Scripture, and we believe that the Scriptures, the Bible, is the inspired, the inerrant Word of God, and it is reliable in everything that it says to us, both in faith and also in life. It will not lie to you. The Scriptures speak truth. Now notice, this isn't a... This is more of a homily, and yet it's conveying sound, biblical doctrine and is affirming God's word the historicity and factuality of scripture the inerrancy of scripture and what's it hanging it on Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead for your sins we assert that through the suffering death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have the forgiveness of sins, and that God the Father has now been reconciled to the entire world, whether they know it or not. That- right on. Whether they know it or not. It's true whether they know it or not or believe it or not. Again, the, an Easter sermon about Jesus? Who would have thunk? Who, who, how could this be possible? Not in today's day and age. We have to be relevant. That Christ's death was the death for all mankind. And that in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it means that God is now at peace with you forever. That all your sins have been pardoned. And we believe with all our hearts that we too, this body, your body, together with Christ, will be raised again upon that last day. And that we are going to enter body and soul into the paradise of all eternity with Christ and his father. Quite frankly, we need to thank those chief priests for making such a wonderful statement of the truth of this matter 
in, through, and behind their lie. Amen. Amen. All right. So there you have it. Another just, humble, good sermon. This one doesn't have the the word pictures of Nicholas Edward Charmley. This is just a humble pastor in a humble parish in a humble part of the country doing what? Proclaiming Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins in him and full pardon. Him died and risen again for you. Isn't that great news? That, that is good news. The good news worth talking about, preaching about, proclaiming and teaching on Easter Sunday. No shenanigans. No playing of uh, ACDC songs or anything like that. Just a simple, humble proclamation of Christ crucified and risen for you. And it's because it's so humble, so simple, and focused on Christ that it's brilliant and right. All right. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Believe it or not, we're we're not going to go three hours. (laughs) Yay! All right. want to remind you that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Um, You can... Donate a couple of ways. You can go to fightingforthefaith.com, click on the donate button, or if you would like to do it the traditional way, you can send your gift to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana. Zip code is 46038. Want to remind you, you can email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or if you'd like to be my friend at Facebook, I'm, I'm a friendly guy. I say yes to my friend requests. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can. My screen name there is Pirate Christian. Hey, until tomorrow, may God bless. <laughs>